Well, all right. How are you feeling? Pretty good. You? Yeah, I think I'm okay. You know, it's been a blustery day, so you know, kind of feeling like it's a good time to do a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. This is Mark Dustin and Kevin Ballman, and this is Help is not on the way. Um, how you feeling about yours? You want to start? Or are you feeling about mine? I think it's, hmm. it's a me day. Are we going to talk about uh, deep sea drilling or Nazi resistance? Oh, Dutch resistance to the Nazis. I think we should go Dutch resistance to the Nazis. Okay, that's that sounds like a leading story. To yeah, me. let's do it. I, I've been. I read about this a while ago, and I, I, it kind of hit the news, or not the news, but it kind of hit the, the media uh, maybe a year or two ago mm-hmm. and when I first saw it, and it caught my attention. So this was even before we were doing this podcast, but um, it's a great story. And it's about, I mean, it, w- what caught my attention was an article about two sisters, um, Freddie and Truce, I believe, over Stegen. I'm Dutch. probably going to butcher a whole bunch of things because it's, you know, yeah, Dutch. It's Dutch, yeah. That's... But um, they were, uh, Freddie was 14 and True 16 um, when this uh, story really gets going. Uh, they were um, living in um, um, North Holland in a, an area called Schotten, mm-hmm. I believe. Now looks like Harlem to me, but it's oh, two yeah. A's. Two A's, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, they in were fact, raised it's probably actually what Harlem was named after because the Dutch did uh, actually colonize, New York. yeah, 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 it, Stuyvesant and all that. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were their their mother, um, she was uh, a member of the Communist Party and taught the girls compassion for those less fortunate. So it's kind of, kind of, you know, how these girls were prepped for, for what was to come. Um, you know, they were housing Jewish refugees, oh, so wow. the girls were sharing one straw mattress. Uh, but they didn't mind because, you know, they had been raised to believe that they needed to to help out those in need. So they were housing Jewish ref- refugees. And uh, in 1940, you know, the Nazis invaded. And right. uh, they were putting up propaganda and posters, mm-hmm. trying to get, you know, workers for the... Uh, you know, for Germany. And uh, the girls started out by kind of going out and um, handing out opposition pamphlets mm-hmm. and covering up the propaganda posters with warnings, um, which this this was dangerous in and of itself because of if they were caught, they could be imprisoned or, or executed for it. Wow. Um, and they, and, and, you know. And they're I mean, 14 and 16 years yeah. old. I mean, we're talking about. Kids. We're literally talking about kids. Yeah. And they looked young, so it, it was one of one of the things that that helped them uh, to get away with this was that they didn't look suspicious. Yeah. Um, when the Nazis invaded, the family had to send the refugees away, fearing they'd be caught, you know, due to the family's communist connections. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the people were were caught and deported, and some were killed. So it it really it really kind of lit a fire um, um, in the girls. Um, and kind of prompted them to take, you know, more active role in the resistance. In 1941, uh, a commander in the Dutch resistance um, uh, asked them to join. Wow. It's called the 
Harlem Council of Resistance. It's interesting that you, you know, they were in a a couple of things that immediately come to my mind are the fact that they were so conscious as to how bad this was and was going to be. Yeah. It was still pretty early days in in the war. And then um and so they were and, and they were so um committed to their beliefs and that they were willing to immediately risk their lives like right away and their youth their mom obviously was really really a strong person but um it all it it it's it i also find it really fascinating that the desperation was so great that the resistance is asking people of that age already to join. Yeah. Like, it's not like you're like, okay, we're starting with the 30 year olds. Uh, you know, we're going to start to get moving down. Okay. You're 18. They're already asking 14 year olds to join, to help, to do anything. And w- what's amazing about this is, um, this resistance group, uh, when they joined, oh, totaled seven people. Oh yeah. So, I mean, this is like, this yeah. is a, a small group of people yeah. trying to take on it's you and your friends. Basically, yeah. yeah, trying to take on the Nazis. I mean, um, it, it's you when you think, think about it, it's quite something. And and have the difficulty of of knowing who you know you know knowing who would be willing to join because right. if you're walking around asking people to join something, you could be just pointed out by somebody who doesn't agree or wants to save themselves their own necks. Yeah, it's a delicate balance there. And and, and something uh, you know uh, akin to that occurs later on in the story uh-huh. um, because you don't know who you're talking to, right. you know, and I, and I assume this, this is kind of the thing in any, in probably in any country where there is like, you know, revolution taking place mm-hmm. or coups or whatever, you, you don't know who you can tell or ask yeah. certain questions to. And that had to be, had to be the case here. I mean, there were a lot of collaborators, a lot of Dutch collaborators. Um, initially, uh, they were, you know, they were doing things like, um, uh, transporting communications and plans and weapons kind of being couriers mm-hmm. you know because they could ride their bikes uh around right. uh, without being stopped because yeah. they just look like kids yeah. they had the, you know braids and ponytails sure. and stuff like that obtaining false ids uh, but then it, it led to um you know they became involved in things like sabotaging bridges and railways and then eventually wow. killing nazis whoa which is where which is what this story is kind of about yeah. is yeah. the that's what caught my mind or caught my eye. I believe it was, you know, some article titled like the, the Dutch teenagers that, you know, killed Nazis or something it's, along it's, those lines. I mean, they, I can't even, th- the, the steel nerves that must have come from, you know, growing up like that and having to. Yeah. And, and there was a, there's a good quote. I mean, you know, initially they were just doing things like, um, going, uh, you know, past the Nazis and calling out to them. Um, there's a, you know, a little, little quote in here that was, that's pretty good. It was, uh, ha Heinz come here. They would call often pretending to be drunk when they oh. struck up conversations with, with the Nazis. Ooh. So, you know, you know, the Nazis are, are like, Hey, look, young girls that, uh, I could take advantage of. Sure. So, yeah. um, uh, but they uh, would initially just kind of lure them somewhere where maybe uh, someone else in in the resistance could could murder them. Yeah. So they might, you know, go out to the woods with a Nazi soldier, and he would just not come back or whatever. And it's guerrilla warfare at its you know at its at its core because 
you know, it's destabilizing. All of a sudden, uh, you know, the the Nazis, the soldiers don't really know what's going on. They can't trust things. Hopefully, right. it's, so it, it, it affects morale. It affects confidence. Yeah. It's, it's, you don't it's know who in the community is doing this, right? It's essentially terrorism yeah. if you're a Nazi, but if you're them, it's survival. And right. it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. But ultimately, that's what they're doing. But in, it's so interesting how different perspectives. Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, you know, they eventually... They were sent out on their own assassination missions, which they called liquidations. Oh. Yeah. That seems cold. It is right? really cold. Yeah. <laughs> Liquid. So there's some liquidations to take care of today. Oh. The assassinations also uh, ended up targeting Dutch collaborators, uh, you know, who arrested or endangered um, Jewish refugees and resistance members. But um, uh, they also moved and hid Jewish refugees and worked in the hospital. So there was a, there was a, their job was wide ranging. Um, But what, what this kind of led to, I mean, it was, there's a quote here that, that kind of, uh, you know, like how, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do this job? Right. But here's a quote from, from truce who said, while I was biking, I saw Germans picking up innocent people from the streets and putting them against a wall and shooting them. I was forced to watch which aroused such an enormous anger in me, such a disgust and a feeling of, quote, dirty bastards. You can have any political conviction or be totally against war, but at that moment, you are just a human being confronted with something very cruel. Shooting innocent people is murder. If you experience something like this, you'll find it justified to act against it. And so I think that's how, you know, you, I, I, the idea of assassination just mm-hmm. seems like so hard to to do but i guess if you're watching this happening and you're seeing this happen right on a daily basis right well and also you know we think from we think about this from where we stand yes you know we can intellectualize the, the to some degree the the horror of it and etc but but we ask ourselves all the, we, the first thing that you, you want to ask yourself is like well how would you know why would they risk their lives to do this they don't have to right but Every single day is another day they may be the one against the wall. That's so, right. And they have no idea when. Or, the, or, or their friends. Or their friends. Or their family. So then you're in a position where it's like, well, why not do this? If it's my day tomorrow, maybe I get I can do something today. You know? Maybe I can take some down with exactly. me. Exactly. If I'm going anyway, yeah. at least maybe I'll take someone with me, you know, um, or create or help in some way. Yeah. And what what what's... Um, what gets interesting about this story is that in 1943, they're joined uh, by um, Hani Shaft. And Hani uh, was a little bit older than them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe she was 22 around, around there but right. when she joined. And she had always been into uh, politics and social justice. Her parents encouraged her when she wanted to go to college to become a human rights lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's in the 40s, you know. Mm-hmm. Um which is pretty interesting, but she was she was forced to drop out because she refused to sign a petition in support of the Nazis, mm-hmm. which I, apparently, from the sound of it, most students refused to sign. They yeah. were they were um, not not going to support that. So she had to drop out, but she had become good friends with a couple of uh, Jewish students, so- Sonia Frank and Feline or Filene Polak, uh, and took them into hiding when she dropped out. Mm-hmm. Um, and she began in a similar way uh, to the to the two sisters. She began by stealing uh, ID cards for the Jewish, you know, um, residents that, you know, in order to help them survive. Yeah. 
Um, she didn't want to be a courier once she joined, though. She wanted to go straight to the weapons. So um, she, like Freddy and Truce, became a saboteur and an assassin. Wow. wow. And they were, you know, um, burning down Nazis warehouses and all sorts of things like that um she she did refuse some assignments though apparently um some of the assignments were kidnapping the children of the nazis and if the mission failed they had to kill the kids yeah that's that's a huge obviously a huge morale crusher on the nazi side of things but clearly morality on on their side she felt it was too it was too similar to what the nazis were doing right she didn't want any part of that but um for honey um Things got, you know, uh, a lot more. It sounds like a lot more dangerous than than even for the two sisters. The two sisters uh, survived, and mm. you know they were there. I don't know if they're both still alive, but um, there have been more recent interviews wow. with them, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they talk about the reason that they did it and it was the right thing to do. But, you know, it wasn't like, this wasn't a, uh, you know, we, we've talked about what the reality of war is, mm-hmm. right? And so this was not like what we see, you know, quote, patriots yeah. on TikTok, you know, oh, talking yeah. about going off to, you know, save the Republic it, and defend it, the Constitution. Exactly. It's, it's frantic. It's confusing. Yep. It's a mess. Nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's you know, it's a, it's, 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 there's nothing elegant about it. They, they talk about the, the nightmares and the, and the terror that they, they would wake up, you know, uh, in night terrors and, yeah. um, they, they suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure, yeah. It was, uh, they couldn't sleep, you know, um, it, it really was, took a toll on them, but they survived. And, and, and unfortunately, Hani Schaff did not. Mm. So she, um, was involved in some, you know, uh, an assassination where she went with another member of the resistance. Uh, and she, uh, there was, uh, their target, um, was shot by Hani, but he shot back and hit the, her collaborator, oh, wow. her, her resistance member. Uh, he was wounded and had to go to the hospital cause he was shot in the stomach. Right. He thought he was so. This is this is the part of the story that goes right back to not knowing who you're talking to. He believes he's talking to Dutch resistance members, but they're they're actually Nazis uh-huh. or Nazi collaborators uh-huh. anyway. Uh-huh. And he gives up Hani's identity and her address. Oh, so the so her the the person she went with got shot but didn't die and right. he thinks he's he thinks he's helping by speaking to his own people yes. and mentions her his right. collaborator on this assassination and instead he's ah uh, he's talking to the now, wrong people I believe because I mentioned that there was only seven members in the resistance at right. least the, that Harlem you know uh resistance but uh, eventually there were hundreds oh wow yeah um uh, and and after the war they they found uh remains of 422 members wow. of the resistance so one was a woman, and that was Hani. Really amazing. Um, so she got. So she was picked up. She was picked up, and in order to get her to confess, the German authorities arrested her parents and sent mm-hmm. them to a concentration uh-huh. camp. Yeah. So um, she had to. She stopped. Uh, you know, her work uh, was no longer a part of the resistance, at least temporarily. Her parents were released after two months. Wow. Yeah. Seems. 
Seems light. odd. For, maybe yeah. they just uh, they ran out of room. They they needed you know space space right. issues yeah. exactly because the Nazis you know they're concerned about overcrowding right <laughs> make anyone uncomfortable right. unduly <laughs> uncomfortable exactly oh boy um but if, uh, you know what so she ended up because she had she had red hair oh very and like you could see so, her coming a mile away. Uh, she had been because of her red hair. She had been put on the Nazis' most wanted list, uh-huh. and she was known as, uh, you know, the the woman with the red hair. Yeah, something uh-huh. along those lines. But she uh, dyed her hair black um, and wore glasses, and joined the resistance again, which is super cool. However, she she went straight back to assassinations and sabotage, uh, as a, as well as you know being a courier and trans transporting illegal weapons and you know newspapers she's and awesome like i mean you know okay so she's already faced the wolf head on she's been she's luckily been let go her parents were already taken away she's already had that threat um she's already she she could at this point in her life say i've done enough i did my part my parents are safe i got lucky yeah I'm, I'm just going to put my head in the sand and wait this thing out. Yep. And she doesn't. She goes right back to it. It was, yeah, she goes. And so she eventually gets uh, arrested at a military checkpoint in 1945 while dis- distributing an illegal newspaper. Five years she gets to do this. Yeah. You know, throughout well, the, up, you know, I'm sure back and forth. And She didn't join in 1940. Okay. She joined in 1943. So she had a couple okay. years. The The other uh, sisters had joined in 1940. They were right away, yeah. One okay, so she gets two, three years in, and yep. she and she. Well, that, but still, it's a long time. I mean, it's a l- good amount of time to create some havoc. Hopefully, she did a lot of damage. Right. And and she was she was she was actually transporting secret documentation for the resistance, um, and uh, she was brought to a prison in Amsterdam where she was interrogated, tortured, placed in solitary confinement. Um, and she was a, eventually uh, identified because they found the roots of her red hair. Oh, a little, you know? little time had passed and yep. the hair grew out. Yeah. And she was executed by the Nazi, uh, Dutch Nazi officials in um, 1945. Wow. Did they say how she was, uh, how she was executed? No, they don't Probably say. Firing squad. But it was, was just months that... before the end of the war. Wow. So she almost made it. Almost made it. Almost made it. Um, what's crazy about this too is, you know, as I mentioned, she was the only woman, uh, remains of Mm -hmm, the -hmm. uh, Dutch resistance that were found. So of all 422 members that, uh, you know, remains that they found she was the only woman. Wow. Um, which is crazy. So it's quite, uh, quite the heroism there, but, um, because she was a member of the, of the communist party as well, and, and they celebrated her as an icon, you know, communism was in the forties, uh, you know, a big fear mm-hmm. around the world. Right. And so they didn't want to uh, commemorate her, her. They oh. didn't want to celebrate her. And when the uh, communists um, tried to hold a commemoration, um, the, the police and tanks showed up to prevent them from doing it. Oh, yeah. They don't want anyone to sort of... They don't want, they don't want the Communist Party to ever look like they're, they're doing right. anything good or positive role models for right. anybody. Yeah. Even though, you know, it's like uh, you could certainly hate 
the party and and celebrate the person but of they course. didn't want to do that but you know since then i mean they're uh, they have yeah and the the all of these women have been have been celebrated oh, good um for what they've done and uh, their streets named after her and um memorials and and commemorations have happened and all sorts of things wow. but um it what a, what an awesome story it was uh to have read and um it's just kind of uh, an inspiring story, even though it ended up badly for for Hani. And, and the sisters were, and the sisters did this, did similar things. They 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 joined earlier. They were in for longer, but they would sort of lure, and Hani probably did too. But they would sort of like, as you said, they'd act drunk or they'd be coy or maybe yeah, they, try to lure a guy. They'd go to the bars, the, yep. you know, whatever, and um and find you know find soldiers that were a little drunk maybe yep, and yep. lure them out for a little nighttime rendezvous and then kill them behind the barn and they just yeah. and then they'd kill them. Yeah. Wow, is there did they and not to it's necessarily the most important thing, but is there any sort of uh, um, tally as to how many they think they were able to. They said um, that they were soldiers and soldiers never say how many people they killed. <laughs> so they've never told. But um, They're probably Freddie, blocking it out. Freddie said she would sometimes shoot a man and then feel a strange compulsion to try and help him. <laughs> I bet. Well, you know, I, you know, it's, it's kind of like a brave new world. You're reading this story about a guy who's on the other side he, he he may not want to be there any more than you do. Some of them, of course, yes, of course, there are people who had drank the Kool-Aid, but so many of them were just doing what they're, I mean, you didn't have any choice, right. no option. You were in the army or yeah. you were consigned. And so yep. you were put in this place, like it or not, this is where you're going to go and you have to do this. There's no one, no one saying that every one of those, everyone who was a Nazi were signed up uh, actually believed in any of it. No. Or didn't just want to be home with their families. Yeah, for uh, for sure. I mean, I'm I imagine you know there is those soldiers that believe this was like the patriotic thing to do sure. for their country, and then there was those that had no desire to yeah. be in the military, but it was kind of like you didn't have an option. Well, and you know? and and more than probably the vast majority of them, if they had just been on the other side, they'd have been more than they'd have been doing their duty there. It wasn't about whatever Hitler's agenda was, right? Or, the Nazi agenda, most of them, because most of them, I think, um, you know, we call them Nazis, but really most of them are really soldiers for Germany. And they were essentially, and this is not an apology for them because they, you know, they clearly didn't, you know, they, they clearly allowed it to happen. Right. But again, many of them probably really just wanted to go home, just like any soldier sure. in any war. You know? And, you know, I mean, this is what, um, to, you know, is so distinguishing about these these girls is that they um, went above and beyond and didn't just survive mm-hmm. because obviously Hani didn't survive. But the, instead of just trying to make it, which is what it, probably a lot of the Nazi soldiers were doing, was just trying to make it through. Yeah, you know, they decided that they weren't just going to try and make it through, but they were going to do something about it because they, they had such a, uh, you know, strong moral compass that they couldn't um, allow these things to occur without trying to do something about it. It's so great. It's so amazing. And obviously again, back to the, you know, it's, it's, it's a morale affecting um, uh, grassroots sort of guerrilla warfare, right? They have to do this because if they do it, 
it helps incrementally. It helps. It puts doubt in the mind of the soldier. It puts fear in the hearts of them. They don't know where the ghosts are coming from that are taking their people. It's exceptionally important. It's even if it's just one here, one there. That's it's right. Constant disruption and, and, no, and if, never and stability. If, and if there are multiple, uh, you know, resistance factions in different, you know, parts of you know the war, you know, different countries, whatever. Uh, it all it all is uh, you know adding up and and uh, hopefully assisting um, you know the big um, military forces that are also trying right. to to deal you know deal deal with the Nazis in a, in a different front. If you are distracting them from their bigger True. objective, yeah. you know, hopefully it's making a difference. And they're unbalanced and they're just not feeling as secure as they, they're not feeling as, as sort of machismo and robust as they go into something because they're, they can't even keep their, their, you know, a bunch of guys go out to a bar and one of them disappe- disappears every couple of weeks right. or whatever it is. Yeah. It's a, that's, that's, that's not morale building. No. <laughs> don't, These, don't, don't drink too much. These late, yeah, right? I'm sure they were. They would have had. They probably were being told, "Don't go wandering off by right, way by into yourself. the woods by yourself with somebody you don't know who you're." You know, what I mean, don't. But of course, you know, a bunch of young boys. It's hard not to um, hard to keep them focused there, on anything. There was a, one more quote that I that I wanted to um, uh, to read, which was basically, you know, when they when first when the when the two sisters signed up and their mom agreed, you know, that it wasn't just the girls. They asked all wow. three whether they could join and the mom also agreed, which is quite something um, to be willing to allow your daughters of 14 and 16 to uh, risk their lives that way. But um, they didn't really know what they were in for at first. And so when they, when they learned that they, uh, of their roles, especially of, you know, killing the Nazis, Mm -hmm. um, Freddie said, uh, well, that's something I've never done before. <laughs> <laughs> Oversimplification right. of a, I guess you, <laughs> that's great. That's great. Because, you know, I mean, she was 14, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, 14 Can years you old. you just imagine being in that place? and all, I mean, But again, you know, back to the thing, you're riding your bike around your town. You're seeing people put against the wall. It's horrific. Oh, you have You feel powerless. You've, you could be next at any moment. Your family, anyone could be next at any moment. Why not go down with a couple notches on your belt or yep. something? You know? And, you know, um, uh, the, other, the other thing I wanted to bring up is that how very Dutch of them to do these assassinations by bicycle. Absolutely, yeah. You know, ambushing on bike. I mean, uh, uh, just awesome. And in the dark, you know, we, we, always, we always forget that you know, there weren't, it would have been so dark to be out there in the dark, dark, right. riding your bike all around, trying to get where you're going, meet people, find people, just the pitch blackness of it all. Can you imagine the constant anxiety and stress you'd be under? Because yeah. you never know the outcome. You never know, have people figured out who I am? Oh, yeah. Any you know, as is, is, is this... Is this my final mission? Am I going to make it out? Yeah, I mean, you never know. Is constantly. someone else going to come out of the bar looking for their friend, yes. or is um, someone going to turn me in, or is someone going to follow me back to where I right. live, or is the door going to get banged on one morning while I'm sleeping? Yeah. And you know, yeah, you never. Of course, that was a threat at that time for so many people, and certainly any Jewish people um, 
all sorts of people that were under the you know that 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 the that the Nazis were targeting. So those people lived under that threat constantly anyway, without yeah. having done anything. No, absolutely. Um, at least it. At least, but that's the thing is, at least you know if you're going, you did something. Right. You know. Yeah, and, and I think that was that was their whole thing. You know, that was their whole uh, thought process, and they just. They felt compelled. They had to do something and, and, you know, try and make some kind of difference. And unfortunately for Hani, you know, help was not on the way. Help was not on the way. You know, I have something today. We, we kind of, I don't know if we're going, are we going dark today? We're going a little bit dark today. Um, this you know, isn't, yeah. this isn't that, this is dark, but like we talk about sometimes, these two stories, they're a little bit, this one's so compelling in its way that is is, is kind of, sort of jarring as it is it's so fascinating um on a very different level than than your story that i think i think it'll bring some light even though it's kind of dark yes this and well another thing about this is this is you know time is is the great sort of um leveler so um this ha- this happened in 1993 um, 1983 which is a, which at this point is a long time to- long time ago right so this is called have you ever heard of this? this? Is called the Biford Dolphin Accident, or it's also known as the Biford Dolphin Explosive Decompression Incident, which I think it's a much more colorful name. And, and uh, from what I understand, because you know when you mention this, the Biford Dolphin has had multiple a few incidents right yeah so the biford dolphin is an oil rig, uh, one of those floating sort of sort of well I think it's stationary with these pylons but it can float and be moved it's one of those oil rigs and those things are really dangerous yeah so some so some backstory or sort of like context as to what we're talking about here is this is based around a type of extreme depth diving called saturation diving and what this is it's it's first of all it's one of the most well-paid and dangerous jobs in the world i think you make like a thousand or two thousand or three thousand dollars a day if you're one of these I'd say guys, because I think typically it's men. I don't know of any women who do it, but there may be. Um, it requires di- divers to live for up to three weeks in a chamber that oh, regulates yeah. their bodies to the ocean pressure of about, of about 150 meters or maybe like about 150 feet below the ocean surface. Um, to do this, divers have to enter this large tank. It's kind of like a big chamber. And um, the atmospheric pressure is slowly raised to approximately nine times that of the Earth's surface. Because you're going to be going down so deep, right? That's what the Yep. It's going to be level to where you're going to be working. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because, of course, as we know, water it has weight to it. So right. you're pushed down below and you're just, you have this pressure on your body and you've got all these things. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. <clears throat> so divers have to breathe this mixture of oxygen and helium to survive. Um uh, that incredible pressure and the helium makes their voices squeaky and puts them in a constant state of cold, which is one of the more sort of, I've thought a lot about this. So they basically feel kind of chilly, cold all the time while they're down there, but they're, but they're, I shouldn't say down there all the time. They're, they're compressed for like three plus weeks at a time. So imagine day and night, everything you're doing all the time, feeling cold, like not really cold, but constant state of, you know, exhausting. It would be exhausting to be, you know, you shiver. Anyway, it's one of the many, many things that is a reason why they're so highly paid. It's exceptionally dangerous work. It's exceptionally exhausting. It's claustrophobic. Um, so 
uh, it takes since it takes like around three days to decompress. I don't remember how long it takes to compress. Probably similar, and then to decompress from these these pressures, you can't just do this. You can't just do this every day. So they it just would be cost ineffective, right. etc. So what they do is um, they live for like I said about three weeks in this compression state. So, um, and to accomplish this, they have to live in these tubes now, um, or in these constantly compressed chambers, or while they're diving, they can be out in the water because they're at the depth that they're compressed to. So keep in mind that if they de decompress too quickly, um, that's the whole thing called the bends, right. which is when you get these bubbles, I think it's nitrogen or something bubbles in your bloodstream. And, um, and that's really, really, really dangerous yeah. you can you, you can die you can die yeah you can certainly get headaches you can get vomiting you can get long-term effects debilitating effects throughout the rest of your life or you can just die yeah um so what the divers are doing at these depths is they're usually working under oil rigs or deep water construction projects etc etc and there's really no very little or no light reaches the ocean floor at this depth so these divers are working for hours on end in blackout conditions and with only their headlamps, um, can barely, I mean, can't really see much. Uh, it's really, I mean, imagine the ocean floor. There's silt everywhere. There's debris everywhere. It's 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 pretty pretty harsh conditions. And they they communicate with one another uh, and the surface deck through radios. But don't forget, they're they're they've been breathing a mixture of oxygen and helium, so their voices are really hard to understand. It basically, it's all around just grueling grueling work, but. There are a group of people who do this, and they're they're experts and professionals, um, and uh, <clears throat> and still do this. But the Bifur Dolphin, it so to give you an idea of what this was, it was a semi-submersible oil drilling rig. It was uh, column stabilized, which means they would push these columns down onto the ocean floor, and it would sit there. We've seen them before in movies right. and in, in documentaries and things like that. Um, it can it could drill up to a staggering twenty thousand feet, and could operate in water up to fifteen hundred feet deep. Wow! So this thing is like yeah insane. It was really state of the art for for the time. Its deck was about the size of an American football field, um, and could move and it could be moved small distances under its own power or be tugged by a tugboat if it needed to be moved somewhere far away. And it's normally be in place like Norway or. Um, the North Sea, places like that, which is where this incident happened. The um, um, and and as you mentioned, the Byford had had its share of mishaps, but the particular one we're talking about, it was um, the Byford uh, Dolphin accident or incident, as it's known, was happened in uh, the frig gas field in um, the North Sea, so the Norwegian North Sea. So this is November fifth. Um, 1983 at 4.30 in the morning, four divers are returning to the surface after a long shift underwater and to stay compressed. The way this works is um, basically they're at, as I said, they're, they're, they're able to swim out of, you know, uh, on their own and work at about 150 feet. Okay. But to, but to, 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 to end their shift or even to start their shift, they go into a diving bell this big, you know, basically a round, roundish steel thing that's compressed to that level of the ocean floor. Right. 
the diving bell is raised all the way up to the rig um, and and stays at compression. Then it attaches, it's very much, very sci-fi. It attaches to um, a housing, like a coupling, that is attached to a, a larger living chamber. So what you do is you you attach to the coupling and the living chamber and the diving bell are compressed the same. So they attach it. They have to go through some Procedure. procedures. They have to make sure one door, you know, is closed. The other one, all the, the whole thing sealed. And then they can open the two doors. They can pass through. They close the door on the diving bell. They close the door on the um, on the capsule. They have bed chambers, and they're really claustrophobic. I mean, it's really tiny. You can right. see pictures of them online. It's it's barely the size of like you know, a small minivan. You're but probably bigger than the diving bell. Yeah, bigger than the diving bell. So, and then they can be, then they can sleep and eat and things. And then, and then they go back down to work. Well, assisting them are two, two people that are called tenders that are outside the diving bell. And what these guys do is they help attach the coupling and they sort of like, then they detach the bell once everything, all the doors are closed and that sort of just goes and lives until they need to reattach it to bring them back down. Well, that um seems like something could go wrong. It it seems like a lot could go wrong, and 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 there's a lot of issues with it at this time because clearly there was not. It was in 1983. The technology was there to do this, but they've they, the protocols were not well formed. They didn't really have a great way to communicate with the divers in the bell or in the chamber, so. What happens here is that, as I say, the communication protocols weren't as established as they are now. And the outside tender, there's this man named William Cramond. He, he's, um, his job is to disconnect the bell. And, um, and he needs to, and he'd done it a bunch before. He, he, he was really, really, really um, uh, experienced in doing this. And so this is how it happens. Divers, Bjorn Bergerson and Truls Helivik are returning from their dive shift. They've been down working and they're coming back up to the bell. And um, in the living quarters already, there were two chambers is uh, these two other divers, a guy named Edwin Coward and Roy Lucas, and they're resting. And the process, the way this is supposed to happen is um, like this. First, the diving bell door must be closed. And, and then the pressure in the diving bell is increased to sort of suck seal that door shut. Mm. Then... The chamber um, door is closed off from that sort of like that coupling trunk, the, the sort of the pass-through. And then the trunk is depressurized to a normal atmospheric pressure so that the bell can be detached and sort of stored. So Kramen, as I mentioned, who's already, uh, who's experienced with this, he mis- he, this is what he did was he mistakenly released the diving bell clamp before chamber one had sealed its door. So... The diving bell is secure, but they, these pivot doors, these sort of like swing, they're sort of like a, a, a I don't know what I call it, a, a butterfly door. It sort of pivots from the middle. It's okay. sort of like, it's a, it's a disc that sort of pivots Almost in the like middle. like a valve or something. Like a valve, exactly. It was not entirely closed before he disengaged the trunk. So what this created was a massive pressure difference between the outside environment and the chamber because the chamber is at nine times normal atmospheric pressure. 
Um, so it normalized that to normal one degree app, you know, one, one degree app atmospheric pressure in an instant. The result is an, ex, an, ex, an explosive decompression. Basically, the air just rushes out of the diving bell at a massive speed. We've seen this before in right. like movies. You see someone broke the window of the plane and someone gets sucked out. Well, this is that. Yeah. But like, I think like way, way worse, way worse. Um, so all four. So this is ugh, sorry. We're about to go. We're about to put plug your ears, kids. Yeah. All four divers in the chamber were in the blink of an eye exposed to a shift in atmospheric pressure that's greater than any human body can withstand. This resulted in their immediate and violent deaths. Simultaneously, the massive rush of decompressed air forced the diving bell away from the trunk, push, basically throwing it, which hit Crayman, the guy who made the mistake, and kills him immediately. The other tender, uh, a man named Martin Saunders, survived the blast but was severely injured. So the divers' deaths are considered some of the most gruesome in history. Uh, although they themselves wouldn't have felt a thing, the sudden and it just happened in in an instant. The sudden loss of pressure caused three of the divers, those that were had were actually in their chambers, the two sleeping, and um, uh, oh, I'm thinking, thinking uh, and Bergerson, who had already climbed into his chamber, it caused, um. It caused their blood to flash boil. That is insane. It killed them instantly. The fourth diver, uh, Helvik, who was the one who was in the process of trying to close the butterfly door, um, he had that airplane incident. He got sucked through what was a twenty, but basically a twenty-four inch. So imagine that the doors being closed, that that butterfly door, and there's a crescent space that's two feet wide but not two right. feet deep you know or whatever yes. yeah it's two feet you know it's maybe like two feet wide and three four inches maybe he gets sucked through that out into the atmosphere he get his body gets sucked through that he gets cut in half the whole thing i mean it's just terrible his organs explode out of the capsule 30 i know gruesome right sorry guys out of the capsule in all directions for like 30 feet just absolute he's he's obliterated he's just he's just evaporated basically i i'm not sure which i mean it's all instantaneous right immediate so so there is no like preferred right dying by boiling blood or died by complete yeah you could kind of like you could trade one for the other right I guess the boiling blood, at least you're maybe intact. Yeah. Sort of. I don't know. I have a feeling they weren't so intact, though. Yeah. I don't, I, you know. Because with that kind of pressure change, I, I wonder I what, what it does to you. I think that they may not have. Yeah. I think it may have been, if your blood boiled. And yeah, because if you have all this pressure pushing on your body and it instantly goes away, what, what happens to like yeah. organs and things like I that? I can't. Yeah. I haven't I found... Know. Not that, and, and I'm not so sure I really want to know more. This is pretty right. gruesome as it is. Yes, it's definitely gruesome enough. It's we don't gruesome. need to dig into the yeah, details, the right? details, yeah. Um, so an investigation uh, resulted in the determination that it was human error on the part of Kramen who, re- who released the valve before Helovic had secured the inner door. But, okay, so obviously that's terrible and you want to put it on Kramen. Part of me is like, okay, well, at least he died so he didn't have to like 
live with that for the rest of his life. But the other thing about it is you have to remember that they can't talk to each other. Right. So the way they would communicate in the bell out or out in the, in the, in the, you know, to talk, to say that the, the door is locked or give them some sort of, you know, signal was to put a bullhorn up against the steel wall and speak into it, thereby making as much noise as possible to hopefully tell the person outside we're good. Now they've been doing this for a long time, so right. it had been working, but it was a pretty foolish and system. Maybe, and maybe that uh, maybe that's part of the problem is that you get a little lax when you've done it so many times and it keeps working. You know? Yeah. I mean, I would think the first fifty times you do it, you're afraid people are going to die if you screw up. So you you really pay attention. But maybe on your you know hundredth time yeah. of doing this. It always yeah. worked in the past, yeah. and 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 he Kramer probably knew about how long it took. He'd probably done it enough to trust that we're good here, and all these other things. But um, we have to keep in mind also that the the oil rig deck is super loud. Like there's a lot of noise. They're drilling oil. They're mo- machinery moving around, and all this stuff. It's not like he's in a silent space listening to right. for a tap on the on the on the steel or three taps, and we're good. But also remember that. Um, Helovic has been working for probably around sixteen hours straight at a in in you know in pitch black, right? Harsh weather conditions, constantly cold. Um, he's probably exhausted. He's probably you know sort of confused, sure, disoriented. He he, for all we know, he may have given he may have thought it was closed all the right. Way. We nobody knows. Nobody he may knows. have misunderstood. He may have given the signal that it's okay to close it. We can't say for sure that Kramen was the one, right, who made the mistake because because there's no no record there's of no what, way what happened on tell. the inside. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. no way to tell. It, it seems you know, like in hindsight, when you look when you when you look at this in that little diagram and everything. I mean, obviously, it's quite the elaborate system yeah. that a bunch of engineers came up with to make this happen. And then it's kind of like, yeah, like just take a wrench and whack on the wall or scream right. through the uh, bullhorn. That's the best and that's, you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also you would imagine that, yeah, there, there and, and it would seem to me, but that I mean, this isn't the sixties. It would seem to you by 1983, you could have some sort of sensor that said that's closed. How about some know? walkie talkies? I mean, yeah. I just don't, they're able to communicate. Well, I mean, of course I don't know all the right. ins and outs, but they're able to communicate Well, Maybe the steel is too thick for them to be able right. to use radios at this point. I don't really know, <clears throat> but you could just bang on it with a hammer three times means, and then a paw there's there, well, whatever it is. There were not the protocols in place. Clearly right. there have been obviously since this incident, like many triggered, you know, uh, not and the investigation and a right. whole revamp of how they do this. And now it's still an incredibly dangerous job. It's still an incredibly dangerous moment, but it's clearly. And, and obviously we, we continue to have really big accidents on oil. Rigs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Deepwater Horizon or whatever that one yeah. was is mm-hmm. another one, a, a different accident, a different type yeah. of accident, but it just seems like these things are, just dangerous yeah they're really well, dangerous. it's incredibly I mean, dangerous work. I, I guess that's why you get paid so much you get paid a ton yeah. to do it it's it's hazard pay yeah you get paid to hopefully not evaporate right in the blink of an eye but you know but still yeah. they're dangerous places to work when, when you sign up i wonder if there's a long list of you know like you know ex, 
body exploding, you know, dis- right. dismemberment. Yeah. How do you feel flash about boiling being of your blood? Yeah, are you uh, yeah, are you dismemberment averse? Right. Yes, I mean, you're signing here it says that you are aware that you could have your blood flash boiled or be dismembered hazards. Or, yeah. Like the, like outside of a pack of cigarettes. Right. You know, maybe they could have like some photos, you know, don't if you do like inside and outside the belt, if you do this, this will happen. Right. Let remember to stay focused in this moment, you know? Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Workplace security or safety there, you know? Yeah. Now, they really, had to change that over from like 200 days of, you know, without injuries to zero days without injuries on the dolphin, buy for dolphin. It kind of makes me wonder about the people that did these jobs. Because, you yeah. know. Um, Still do. Yeah. And, and do. Like, is, is it a special kind of person or like... Um, special breed of person that does i mean it's like if you were to say to me hey kevin we'll pay you three hundred thousand dollars next year to do what we're just describing here right. i would be like that's all right i'm good well because you know it's it's funny you say that because when they said i don't i want to look this up a little closer because it says it's one of the highest paying jobs in the world so like they get paid like a thousand dollars a day yeah yeah but you can't do it. You don't get paid a thousand dollars a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. You get a paid a thousand dollars a day while you're doing while it. You're doing right? It. right. So and maybe so for a month. But then there are all these protocols. You're not allowed because you can get really sick if you keep doing this too right. much. There, you're there's a you're only allowed to do it so much. So sure, you can go make thirty thousand dollars in a month, but you may not be able to work for the next month right. or two. And look at the sacrifice you're making. Yeah. You're not out enjoying life. You're literally in a bell at the bottom of the ocean or whatever. So it's not, It's is. I mean, it's that whole, so over the course of six, you know, you, maybe you can do it, I don't know how much, but maybe you can do it five months a year. Right. That's a lot of money, especially for somebody who's got a, an interesting right. skill, but not a high level. Sure. Um, computer skill or banking skill or something like that. It's a lot of money, but the amount of sacrifice you're making is enormous, right. you know, and it's health sacrificing and so much more. And and I can't imagine if you have a family or something, you know, right. I mean, it's, it's, and then there are those kinds of things. Uh, there's other professions I think that are, are similar in that they're high risk. You get paid a lot for what the amount you're working or whatever, but you also are sacrificing so much else besides just having this risk. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd like to see if these guys, if these people are getting paid, you know, a quarter of a million dollars plus a year to, and in, and maybe paid while they're not diving, I could see there being, and you can only have to dive like three, four months a year maximum. I could see there being a reason for that. Yeah. Um, you're getting a lot of your life. You're still exor- you know, you're able to be home with your family, do whatever you, you know, do things you want to do and you're making great money. Right. But if it's okay, great. That was a great $30,000. We'll see you in two months. Right. It's like, well, now that you start to spread this out, of course, a lot of these people may not be able to make that kind of money, but you're still like, you're, it's not as much as it sounds. Right. So, if you're only doing it for a certain amount of months of the year, yeah. it's like, yeah, if you worked every day, you could make 300 $60,000 yeah. or something like you know, ridiculous like that, but you're not working. You're not working every, every day. day. No. And, um, and you're cold all the time, cold all the time, cold all the time. I, the, the one last thing I wanted to say about this, and I would think this is with so many of these types of disasters, somebody has to go in and investigate and clean up. Oh yeah. What an awful job awful those job. people have, right? Yeah. Go in to a place that, you know, you got to so, poke your head in that little, yeah. you know, 
opening ah. and go, oh, yeah, yeah, no. This was really bad. Yeah, this one's bad. Everybody's dead. And yeah, and, and you get, yeah, you know, that's an interesting one. We should do a, um, uh, either an Are We Recording, our other podcast, or mm-hmm. a Help Is Not In The Way, because um, there are, you know, there are sort of death scene cleanup crews. That right. whole, talk about a high paying job. Yeah. It's pretty. And, and of course, there's also the ones that are the, um, what are they? They're, they're called cleaners. Cleaners. Except that. They're like for the mob, right? Right. Make, make make dead bodies disappear. Disappearing, right? yeah. They just they they're, they're sort of yeah. That's another awful job, I think. I don't think it'd be. Just, I think it's job. paid really well. Yeah, yeah. Another another dangerous job. And, and you probably can't quit. Yeah, yeah. One of them you can quit. You'd probably right. be better off being the one who goes and cleans up after, like the actual right. legitimate one with that gets paid yes. taxes. Because then at least at one day you could go, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm done. Yeah. If you're a cleaner for the mob, you can't quit. Yeah. You're going to be cleaned one yeah. day is what's going to happen right. to you. Yeah. <laughs> so the, so this thing, the last thing on this is that the, you know, the family, it was a big cover up, at least claim of one and the families, the 26 years after all of this, the families, um, did get a payout, some compensation, um, a lot of things happened. They changed a lot of regulations. They changed a lot of protocols. And uh, and 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 interestingly, the um, the the dolphin, the bo- the bo- buy for dolphin was was scrapped only in 2019. It's been around all that time. Well, looking at the Wikipedia page on this, I mean, it, there were um, sounds like seven other people that died in separate incidents. Yeah, like six fell out of a lifeboat after. Yeah. Someone got hit in the head with yeah. a yeah, like a swing arm. So or I mean, like that. oh, these things are—it's dangerous business. Yeah. So I mean, uh, how many died in 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 this this incident they were talking about? Was five, it five, and, and one s- severely severely injured, and and seven more. I mean, so twelve people died on this thing. Yeah, this thing's at least right. This thing's this thing's got a reputation. But have you ever seen footage of um like high seas around these things. Oh, it's so crazy. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And you got to imagine some people are on that and it's just like slamming. Those the ocean is a is a crazy place. I you know, this the um help is not on the way could solely do stories about help is not on the way in the ocean. In the ocean. Right. I mean, oil rigs, help oil rig, the oil rig uh right. you know, series. series. Yeah. We find out like 12 years from now we're still doing them, you know, and then this other guy, he fell right. down the thing and his head popped off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so gruesome. Sorry, everybody, but uh, it's already laugh. But, uh, you know, that's why we do. That's why we tell stories from a long time ago. So we can put some distance between us. Right, right. And Unfortunately, we couldn't laugh too. too much at mine because it involved Nazis. It's hard to. I mean, and teenagers and teenagers. Yeah. At least the teenagers were killing the Nazis. That's the good part. Right. Yeah. That's the good part. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, that's the way we like to tell the stories. When the teenagers are killing the Nazis, it's a good story. That's right. That's right.